What a great song. I have not heard that, I don't think. But if I have, I wasn't listening. And I enjoy that. I enjoy these young people, too. I'm so blessed. When I see you, I'm blessed. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, today we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Our purpose is to look at the church that Jesus established, to ask ourselves the question, are we that church? There are many models out there, but our desire should be that we are a New Testament church. Now, then as now, the church has come under attack. In the United States, the the attack that comes to the church today is primarily through political correctness. Now, political correctness has evolved. When it began, it was the desire not to be offensive. That was a good goal. We understand that we live in a pluralistic society, that there are many different races here, different religions, different philosophies, and so forth. So there is no reason for us to needlessly be offensive, and that was the goal in the beginning. Then it evolved to tolerance. So it's not just not being offensive, but to tolerate. That also is a good goal. We don't all have the same opinions, but everyone should have the respect of their opinion. We don't have to agree, but we should be able to hold the opinions that we do. So it began with the desire not to be offensive. It evolved into toleration, and then it evolved again into acceptance. That is a bad goal. And the reason I say that is because with acceptance, I might be called on to accept something that is offensive to me. And then it evolved into the method or the means of attack on the church. So the church is under attack in the United States today. And I think that we all understand that. In the New Testament, the church also suffered attack. In the beginning, the church was very successful. There was an incredible spirit of unity in the New Testament church. The Bible says that they were all in one accord, that they shared everything in common. So there was this tremendous unity in the New Testament church that we see in the book of Acts. The New Testament church grew rapidly. The scripture says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There was tremendous spiritual power in the New Testament church. People were being saved, lives were being changed, uh, people were being healed, those who were lame could walk, those who were blind could see, those who were dead were called forth from the grave. So when we look at the formation of the New Testament church in the book of Acts, it began very successfully, and then there was an attack. They said, uh, we don't want you to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And the disciples then said, but we are to obey God rather than man. So let's look in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said... Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Now, we're going to look at several other verses in this passage of Scripture. But in our text, as we look at it, we see the disciples now in prison. So they have been arrested and imprisoned. Why? 
What was the motivation? What was behind it? We'll look at verse number 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. The word jealousy means heat, zeal, to be hot, annoyance. So the, the Sanhedrin then, which was the ruling body of the Jews, was annoyed at the church, was annoyed at the disciples and what was happening. He mentions the high priest and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the majority party within the Sanhedrin. They were the liberal group. They did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees were the conservative group. They did believe in the resurrection. But the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, was upset with the church and said, we don't want you to speak anymore in his name. You know as well as I that the world is upset with the church today. The church that stands on the word of God. There are those who are upset and they say, well, you're not to be involved in entertainment, those kinds of things. You're not to be involved in education. You're not to be involved in the political process. How many times have you heard people say, you're to stay out of politics. You're the church, so you are to stay out of politics. So what they are saying to us then, because they are annoyed with us in the positions that we take, is that you are to be silent and not speak anymore in Jesus' name. In fact, in verse 28, it said, we gave you strict orders. That's what they said to the disciples back then. We gave you strict orders concerning this. Albert Barnes wrote, they were envious at the success of the apostles, at the number of converts that were made to a doctrine that they hated, They were indignant that the apostles regarded so little their authority and disobeyed the solemn injunction of the Sanhedrin. So they said, we we gave you strict orders concerning this. Don't want you to speak anymore in his name. That's what the world says to us today. In fact, the world would say to the church today, you can believe what you will, but keep it within the walls of the church. You can pray if you wish, but not publicly, not, not at sporting events, not at councils, not at conferences, not at public events. It's okay for you to pray, just do it within the church. It is all right for you to believe whatever it is that you believe, but keep it within the walls of the church. I read an article a couple of weeks ago about a military base in um, Afghanistan. There's a chapel there. And they removed the cross from the outside of the chapel because they did not want to be offensive. In other words, it is okay to have the cross, keep it inside. It is all right to have religious icons, but keep them inside. You can't get out here in the world, don't get out here. So we don't want to see those religious icons. Why is that? What's the big deal? Why is it that the world says to us with our beliefs, because we have so prominently, at least in this country, we have so prominently been a part of the history of this nation. Now, why is it that the world says to us that we want you to stay within the confines of the four walls of the church? What's the deal? It is a desire to establish a secular worldview. Now, there are two basic worldviews. There is a biblical worldview. I see the world through the eyes of the Bible. 
and there is a secular worldview. Now, folks, those are competing worldviews. And whichever view we take, we begin then to design our policy, our regulations, and so forth, according to our worldview. They stand in contrast to each other. Now, let me give you an example with the uh, issue of life. Let's just take life and look how it goes with these two worldviews. In a secular worldview, life is not sacred. There is no sanctity to life, not in the secular worldview, you know. Okay, then if, there, if life is not sacred, then in policy, I design policy, laws, legislation that reflects that worldview. So it should not be a surprise that abortion then becomes the law of the land. If life is not sacred, why then should there be an unusual commitment to preserving life? If it is not sacred, and especially the life of an unborn child. Billy Graham wrote in his book, Storm Warnings, In 1960, there were fewer than 100,000 abortions in this country annually. In 1972, there were nearly six times that number. But in 1978, with the legalization of Roe, a secular worldview, plus the backing of pro-abortion and feminist groups, more than 1.4 million abortions were carried out annually. Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of abortions in this country. So whenever you look at it, you take the issue of life and you have a secular worldview then you say, well, then life shouldn't, I mean, not necessarily protected, and so there's abortion legalized as a result of it, and then that goes to euthanasia. I mean, when, you guys better wake up down here, I mean, whenever you get old and infirmed, no longer contribute to society, you're just a drain on society, you're spending all the money trying to keep you alive, well, why don't we just cut them loose? I read a recent poll that said two-thirds of America believe in the right to die. That is a big change. But do you see what is happening? If you embrace a secular worldview, then it is played out in the political arena. So it begins with abortion. Then it goes to euthanasia. These people are no longer contributors to society. And then it goes to infanticide. Infanticide is a... It's an interesting idea to me because it is so subjective. For instance, if a woman is pregnant and she wants the child and someone terminates the life of that child, that person then is guilty of homicide. But if the woman is pregnant, she does not want the child, then it is legal to terminate the life of the child. seems to be very subjective to me. And I think that we have seen some of the horrors of uh, infanticide in the trial of, of Gosnell. He, he said last week, I, I, I heard this last week, that he said that he was spiritually innocent. I don't have a clue as to what that means. But after doing the things that he did, he said that he was spiritually innocent. All right, so the point that I'm, say, that I'm trying to make is, is that there is this conflict that is going on between two worldviews. There is a biblical worldview, there is a secular worldview, Both of them are competing, and the results are very different concerning the issue of life. A secular worldview 
does not necessarily try to protect life because it isn't sacred, but a biblical worldview says that life is sacred. In fact, the psalmist said, Psalm 139, 13, For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. While I was in my mother's womb, according to the scripture, a biblical view of life, then God is weaving that child. He is weaving you. The Bible says in Jeremiah 1, verse number 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God said to Jeremiah, before you were ever formed, before you were ever born, he said, I knew you then. In Luke chapter 1, verse number 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. That was Elizabeth talking about when Mary came and and Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And according to Elizabeth, when you came in, John the Baptist was praising the Lord. From the womb, he was praising the Lord. So they say here, In this passage of scripture, the disciples have been arrested. We have given you strict orders not to speak in his name. Well, what did the disciples do? Look at verse number 29. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Folks, the church has always come under attack, but that does not mean the church rolls over to play dead. I know that there are those who want the church to do that, but it never has. Billy Graham said, actually, there is still good reason to hope. There is still time. If we recognize the failures of living without God and turn from our foolishness and disobedience, we may yet be able to receive God's mercy and forgiveness. I want you to see two facts I hope that will encourage you in this passage of Scripture. Number one, God has the keys. Now look at verse number 19. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. No matter how big the problem, no matter how strong the opposition, God has the keys. Now, God does not just let us out of the prison. He doesn't just open the gates. He opens the gates to let us out for a purpose. What was the purpose? Look at verse 20. Go your way. Stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. God says, I have let you out that you might go out into the world and speak the whole message. Don't compromise it. Tell it all. He said, I want you to leave this prison. The gates have been opened. I want you to go into the world, into society, and I want you to proclaim the whole message, the whole message of salvation, the truth of salvation. Look at chapter 4, verse number 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, our job is to not make people feel good on the way to hell. And without Jesus Christ, that is exactly what the Bible says. In fact, the scripture says in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
Only Jesus died for us. Only Jesus forgives us. Only Jesus makes us sons of God. So what he is saying is that I'm letting you out. But I want you to go out and tell the whole message. I want you to proclaim the whole truth. Don't hold anything back. We're to tell the truth about life. God gave life and it is sacred. Your life is sacred. Because God created it. And no Supreme Court ruling can change the fact that life is sacred, that God gave life. We'll tell the whole truth. That's what he says. Tell the whole message. Tell it all about salvation. Tell the truth about salvation. There's only one way of a person being saved, and that is in Jesus Christ. He said, tell the whole truth concerning life, that life is sacred. Tell the whole truth about marriage. Let me tell you something. God instituted marriage. It was not the idea of man. He didn't come up with the idea of marriage. It wasn't the idea of government. Government did not come up with the idea of marriage. It was God. When God brought Adam and Eve together, then he created marriage. And in his creation, marriage is between a man and a woman. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I know upon reading that, upon hearing that, and upon the position that I take, there are some well-meaning people, sincere people. I'm not questioning that at all. And I go back again. I believe that we should be as inoffensive as possible. I, I don't think that we should unnecessarily be offensive. Okay? But there are some people who would say, well, you know, I understand what you're saying. But you can't tell someone who to love. Really? Well, then let me ask you a question. If a 60-year-old man and his 15-year-old niece decide they are in love with each other. Is that okay? You see, the truth is we've always set parameters, always. It's just that our worldview determines the parameters we set. That's the reason that your worldview is so important. Do you view the world through a scriptural lens, or do you view the world through a secular lens? Well, what did the disciples do? Look at verse 21. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. After they had spent a night in prison, they are up at daybreak proclaiming the whole message. I mean, they, they didn't wait. Most of us would have slept in. I mean, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been in prison all night. I'm going, to get a, I'm going to sleep at least till 10. But the Bible says at daybreak, they are up to proclaim the message. So, number one, God has the keys. No matter how big the problem, strong the opposition, God has the keys. Number two, God's plans are unstoppable. Look at verse number 38. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, 
you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel understood. Now, the, the, the disciples had been preaching a message about Jesus. Gamaliel, great Jewish rabbi, understood that if this is of God, you can't stop it. If it is of God... There is no way that you can stand. Folks, it ought to encourage us to know that God's plans will be fulfilled. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Man cannot stop what God has promised. For instance... The Lord told the Jews that he was going to give them a land of promise, land flowing with milk and honey. When they got there, they sent in 12 spies to spy out the land to come back and give a report. Well, 10 of those spies came back and said, look, we went over there. It's all that God said it was was going to be, land flowing with milk and honey. But the people over there are like giants, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. I mean, there's no way that we can do this. I know that God said it, but there is no way that we can do it. And the Bible says that the people wept that night. They despaired that night. They had heard the bad news from the ten, and they decided that they couldn't go in. So they said it would be better for us just to go back to Egypt and being slaves again. But folks, God's plan was not stopped. God had promised the land. Joshua took the troops, the people of Israel, they went to Jericho, they marched around the city, the walls fell down, and the victory was established because God's plans are unstoppable. Plan of salvation. God had promised salvation. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before he created this world. Did you know that God's plan for your salvation, for your redemption goes back before this world? Before this world, before the foundation of the world was laid, God had a plan for your salvation. That was fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was his plan. That he would send his son, his son would die on the cross, he would be raised from the grave, and man could be saved by faith in him. So, we must obey God. That's what the disciples said. Why? Because God has the keys. He can open any door. And God's plans are unstoppable. It doesn't make any difference. God's plans are unstoppable. And then it says they were considered worthy in verse number 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to to suffer shame for his name. Now, the Sanhedrin concluded that they were worthy of the punishment. That the disciples were worthy of the punishment prescribed. How did the disciples respond to it? Well, did you notice there? It says that they went on their way rejoicing. They went on their way rejoicing. Folks, the world attacks, always has. The world has always attacked the church because there is this this competition between the ways of the world and the ways of God. There has always been this, this, uh, uh, this attack that comes from the world to the church. All the way back to the New Testament to now. They were imprisoned then. There's always been this tension between the church and the world. So how then are we to respond? We are to rejoice. The Bible says in Jude verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. 
I read that this past week and I'm thinking about it because I have a tendency to fret and uh, I have to fight cynicism. Sometimes I can become cynical about things. I see what's happening and I think this is stupid. And so I have to fight that. And then I read in here that if I'm walking with Jesus, I ought to be walking in joy. Folks, there's no reason for us to be wringing our hands and whining. There is no reason for us to be ready to throw in the towel. We are to be rejoicing. You see, we rejoice because it is all in Jesus. It's not in Washington. It's not at the end of Main Street. It is in Jesus. And so we are to be rejoicing. Then it says they just kept on. Verse number 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I love that. They kept right on, the Bible says, every day. Not just on Sunday. Every day. Now, sometimes we are comfortable to come together, and I I love it as much as you. You know, the people of God assembling together and we get to worship and sing and listen to the music and study the Word of God and all that. But not just on Sunday. Folks, this is not it. If this is all you get, you're, you're just getting inoculated with enough to keep you from getting joy. Every day. The Bible says that every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, every day. And it says they continued in the temple. They were faithful in the temple. They went to the temple. They were faithful in the temple. And then it says from house to house. They continued faithful outside the temple. See, that's really the key to it. That's where it really matters. That's the reason that I really admire lay people more than I do my bunch. Because you're out there in the world. You're out there where it really does matter. And whenever you go to work, when you go to school, wherever you are in your neighborhood, you're out there being faithful to the Lord every day in the temple and from house to house. Now, let me conclude. Church is under attack. Nothing new. Church has been under attack since the Lord began to bless it when he established it. There's no question about that. No decision about that. No mystery about it. We must obey God. The church is under attack. We must obey God. Why? Because he can open the doors that authorities try to shut. Because his plan is unstoppable. It doesn't make any difference uh, who stands in opposition to the plan of God. His plan is unstoppable, and that's what Gamaliel said. If this is of God, you can't stop it. And you will find yourself fighting on the side against God. So his plan is unstoppable. What I would like for us to do, I think what the Lord would like for us to do, is To live with such commitment to Jesus, such joy, and such commitment to Jesus that we are worthy, that those outside the church would consider us worthy because of our commitment to Christ. Does the world look at you and the way you live and say, that that person's, okay, you persecute the church, that person's worthy of persecution. Because they're standing for Jesus. That's where we ought to live. There's no question, but there's going to be persecution. There's no question, but there's going to be attack. But God holds the key. His plans are unstoppable. You and I just need to live worthy lives.
in our commitment to Jesus Christ. Do you do that? Oh, I pray that you do. Because you are the salt and the light that is desperately needed in our world today. Let's bow our heads together. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed in just a moment, we're going to pray and then we're going to stand and the choir will sing an invitation. But my friend, if you have never invited Jesus Christ into your heart, he is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. I pray that you will today. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love for you to be a part of this family. I hope you'd feel welcome. Our gracious Father and God, we come to a time of invitation asking, Lord, for the, for the movement of the Holy Spirit, that you take your word, apply it to lives, that people would come to Christ, that we would live worthy, worthy of the name that is above all names, that we would live worthy in the world rejoicing in Jesus, even in the face of opposition. Bless this invitation, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, as we stand together, the choir sings as they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.